2: Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, going big and small. The Dow, the Russell, hitting new highs again today. We're focusing on the state of stocks and your money, as always, debating that with our investment committee. And joining me for the hour today are Jim Leventhal John Nigerian Courtney Gibson is the president of Loop Capital Markets. Megan Hsu is the head of investment strategy at the Wilmington Trust. Let's go to the wall, check where stocks are going for their seventh positive day in the past eight. There is so much going on today. Fed chair speaking, bottom of the hour. The Biden's a stimulus speech tonight. And on that note, Jim Labenthal, I begin with you. And I could have begun at a bunch of different places because there's some really interesting moves that y'all are making. <laughs> Jim Labenthal, you sold Caterpillar. <laughs> you, we're getting a stimulus speech tonight. It's- we we may get infrastructure in, in the road ahead. What, what's up?
3: Well, I, I mean, look—the market is anticipatory. I don't need to tell you that, Scott. But uh, that's why—that's why CAT is not just up off of the lows from March. It's up 34% year over year. That's going back to before the pandemic. So let's face it: there is a lot of good stuff priced into Caterpillar, um, and that's partially reflecting low interest rates, which is why you've got roughly a 25 times multiple. For Caterpillar, that's as good as it gets. And as a portfolio manager, I need to sell high after I've bought low. Caterpillar's been great. It's up about 60% in two years for me. I'm taking some of the proceeds. I'm putting it into something that I can buy low. That's Boeing. I'm adding to my Boeing position. I'm also, Scott, I'm sure you're going to want to dance with this. I'm also adding to my cash. So I've raised it to about 12%. I'm not making a heroic market call with that. All I'm saying is that as I sell high here, I find fewer and fewer opportunities to buy low. So I'm just going to keep my dry powder, uh, increase it for when I do have those opportunities to buy low. It's more of a portfolio manager's perspective than anything market timing or making a call on the overall market.
2: Really? Because it feels to me like you're somewhat making a call on the overall market, afraid that, you know, if you say, if you're telling me that basically everything is in Caterpillar, all the news, then you must think that a lot of good news is in a lot of the market now. I don't know how you could could, could say otherwise.
3: Yeah. Well, y- y- well, here's how I can say otherwise. I mean, one, you know, 100 percent minus 12 percent equals 88 percent. I'm fully invested. And, and take a look at just, for example, General Motors. Right. I mean, that thing is on fire. I'm not selling that. Why am I not selling that? Because, look, maybe it goes down 10%, 15% over the next few months. But at the end of the year, I would expect that to be above 60. And at the end of two years, in the economic expansion and the profit cycle we've got going right now, all that stimulus you talked about, I would expect two years from now that's well above 80. Okay. So, you know, you you, you got to look at both sides of what I'm doing here. I'm I just – this is more of a portfolio manager. Selling high so I can buy low.
2: I got you. Um, okay. So – That brings me to you, Courtney, Um, Uh because this one, I have to say, it surprised me. You sold Peloton. okay? okay? you sold Peloton. I'm doing it because I feel like it's a theme here. Right. Jim sells cat after a big run, wants to cash out because he feels like all the news is in. You sold Peloton. I I want you to tell me why, uh, because you threw some shade at me not that long ago. Uh, when we had this conversation about (laughs) Peloton and the buy that you made because of the Beyonce deal that they had. Um, So I was surprised, frankly, when I saw that you sold it. Is there more to the story? Talk to me.
4: There's always more to the story. And let me be clear, Scott, the only way I'm throwing shade at you is to protect your eyes. okay? But ultimately, Peloton is a name that like like I said before, I like the space. I like the fitness, athleisure space and the work from home uh, scenario obviously plays in very well with that. I got a huge bump from that day and I was very transparent with you when I bought it. Um, and I said to you, I said, look, they have a huge amount of pent up demand, which is great. It's something you want to see. People want the product. The problem Peloton is having is deliveries. I brought up my sister who I said to you at the time, I said she should have her Peloton in December. It's pushed out a whole nother month. She's now waiting two months for a Peloton. What does that provide an opportunity for customers to do in the interim? find an alternative. And guess what? I think people are going to do that. Pe- we are living in a very instantaneous society. Min- millennials, Gen Z, etc. cetera. We like things at our fingertips. And when you can't get something now, i.e. like same day deliveries with an Amazon, same day deliveries with Walmart, two hour deliveries at Lululemon, four hours at Target, we like things now right? And the problem with Peloton is they are not responding to the customer. They made an acquisition, with I think is a good one. If you want to sit and wait for a dip, I may come back in this name. I think they may get it right long term. I just hope they don't lose momentum.
2: Well, I mean, I'm surprised in part, though, because the, it was December 21st when we had this conversation and you you said that there was, quote, um, room to go still in the stock. And look, yep. it, it, it should also be and noted. There was, it
4: jumped up to 170 or 168. I didn't get out at, at that height. I'm not going to pretend I did. I got out around 163, 164, but that's a lot, Scott. I bought it below 100. Below 100.
2: Yeah, I hear you. Look, and and when I said is is there, you know, maybe there's more than you know that meets the eye here. Um, we did note that you are on now the Lulu board, right? You're you were appointed to the Lulu board recently, so you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't sure if that had played into your decision making here in in any way, shape or form, simply because there is a competing type product um, that Lulu has. So I just want to be upfront um, in the way we have this conversation.
4: It it is most definitely. And I have to obviously be careful on what I say. But When we look at whether it's Lulu, whether it's Apple, whether we look at other diversified businesses, Lulu did an amazing thing before I got on the board with their acquisition of mirror. They followed the trend. The same reason I would have bought a Peloton is the same reason I loved the acquisition by Lulu of mirror. It was an incredible use of capital and it was in a space that they can own and they will own. But that being said, They are really responding to the consumer. And I'm very concerned with the way that Peloton is actually responding to people that want their product. And that's important. You have to be consumer centric in retail, especially right now, if you want to win.
2: Okay, Um, uh, so I'm glad we had that conversation. I mean, I feel like it's an important I feel like in some respects, I think every investor may be having these conversations with themselves or or their advisor at at this point. I've got a stock like Jim and Kat, have gained a lot. Maybe now's the time to take some of it off the table. Perhaps a lot of it's already in, particularly when you're talking about stimulus and infrastructure and plans for spending under under a Biden administration. Peloton has a huge run. Maybe now's the time to take some off the table as a lot are focusing on more cyclical sides of the market, which brings me to Megan Shu, who is sort of on the other side of the fence in the, in the sense that you are upgrading U.S. small cap stocks to overweight. You've done that in the past few weeks. And, you know, I don't know. It feels like maybe that's a little late. Right. These stocks have had a big, huge run. Why is now the time to overweight? And wasn't it months ago?
0: Well, we did add to U.S. small cap uh, back in December. We added to emerging markets in November and then again in December Um, You know, certainly a 30% run for U.S. small cap is a lot. We would not expect uh, that to be repeated over the next three months. But (laughs) small cap is a very clear early economic cycle play. And while valuations have climbed um, quite a bit in a very short amount of time, we do still think there's some room for earnings for U.S. small cap to grow into that. We also look at a tremendous amount of pent-up demand Um, And liquidity, which should benefit U.S. small cap and also emerging markets. If you look at cash on corporate balance sheets that could be deployed into M&A, much of which would be targeting smaller companies in the small cap space. If you look at cash that is accumulated um, in terms of consumer savings on the order of about a, a trillion and a half dollars since the pandemic began, we expect that to shift into services, shift into um, companies that are smaller on the cap scale. So we've certainly seen quite a bit, but we think earnings can grow into the valuations for U.S. small caps.
2: I mean, I bring it up, you know, small caps, the Russell's up 33 percent over the past three months, 12 and a half percent over a month. It was an area that Jeffrey Gunlock raised You know, if you want to use the word concern about if you're saying, okay, we are, in his words, record breakingly high in terms of valuations. And he had a a handful of charts. There were many different areas of the market he could have picked. But he did, um, Megan, raise the issue of the Russell. Um, It's now closed above its 200 day moving average for one hundred and nineteen straight sessions. And I, I should also say, you know, a good part of the debate right now, too, is is. Yes, there's pent up demand. Okay, but things in certain areas of the economy are weak, i.e. employment. Right. You got nearly nearly a million new jobless claims today. So that has to factor into this conversation, too, I think.
0: Yeah. And that is so you make a great point. It doesn't feel like it by the stock market, but the economic numbers we're seeing are still very clearly early economic cycle. The ISM manufacturing coming in at 60 uh, last month. If you look at other indicators like that, you tend to see U.S. small cap outperform large cap in environments like that. And it generally does not last for one month or two months or three months. It generally is the beginning of a more lasting trend. So while you could look at the last month or three months of activity in really any area of the market and say that we are probably short term overbought, Uh, short term in in a place of perhaps euphoria. If you're willing to look out 12 months or more, we still feel confident in uh, in in U.S. small cap and equities more generally.
2: Yeah. You've got overweight now, um, upgraded to financials, energy, materials, industrials, very much that cyclical and value theme. Wolf Research uh, thinks that's going to continue. Savita over at Bank of America thinks it's going to continue. John and Jerry, and look, the, the last time or at least one of the last times we had a conversation about the market, you had taken down a lot of your positions. So where are you now?
5: Mm-hmm. Still in the same spot, Scott. Uh, as you know, I pulled a lot of the stocks off and I put on call spreads instead because I could risk less and get a still participation to the upside while putting a bunch of money into cash and into Bitcoin. That trade has worked out really well, quite frankly, and um, I'm sticking with it. Now, as far as uh, (laughs) stocks in general, do I like them still? Yeah. I mean, I bought a lot, and I know Pete was on with you yesterday talking about Freeport and others. That stock is absolutely on fire. Uh, And, uh, obviously, President-elect Biden's speech tonight at 7.15 will probably give it a little more of a boost, and traders are looking for that. Mm -hmm. It's up 30% in a month. It's up, I think, 140% year over year. I mean, this is a phenomenal performance. Um, And same with Cliffs, CLF, uh, a lot of the big infrastructure sort of bills that are likely to come, not on this stimulus talk that he's going to talk about tonight, Scott, but the next bill. um, I think those continue to play out. And that's why if I'm adding, I'm adding in that area right now as well as that alternative energy space, Scott.
2: It should be noted, too, that your brother, who, you know, maybe was not quite on all the way on the same side of the boat as you, uh, made it clear, whether it was yesterday or the day before, um, that he was also, you know, taking down a number of his equity positions and choosing to go from the derivatives market and play the options rather than um, staying with a lot of his equity positions, just trying to get positioned on the right side of where he thought the market uh, was going. You know, there, there's some other interesting notes out today, too, when you're having the conversation about growth versus value. Netflix named the top internet pick over at BMO. Um, Bank of America, now, they make Google their top fang pick for 2021. Their top 2020 fang pick, John, was Netflix. So you've got one going Netflix top pick for the internet. You've got one now saying not anymore. Mm-hmm. Now Google's the best way to play it. What do you think?
5: Well, um, I love Netflix, uh, as you know. Uh, and what I've done, Scott, is took, took a look. And I know Prashant and Patricia pulled up some charts for us. Netflix made an uh, uh, 11% correction very, very quickly. Yeah. It went from 545 mm-hmm. down to uh, 485. Um, that 11% correction, I think, gave people another chance to get back in. They are 28% of streaming. Nothing wrong with Disney. I'm not saying there's anything wrong. They've had great growth, moving up to 6%. But that stock has moved up 50%, Scott, just uh, in in the last eight weeks. So Disney, even though the runway looks great ahead of them, that's, I think, more priced in. Whereas Netflix, after that correction of 11%, looks a little more tasty to me. As far as Google, um, no, I'm not uh, on board with them about Google. I'd, I'd still rather hold Netflix than Google at these prices.
2: Yeah, we're showing you shares of Petco right now, which uh, the IPO out today and it has just opened for trade up uh, better than 50 percent. Court, so as you look at a Petco, Burn. let's just play off the news for a moment. You look at Petco up 50 some odd percent. Poshmark went out today. Well, that stock, I think, was up better than 100 percent. If we can show that there there it is. It's up 119 percent. DoorDash is up something like 60 percent in three days that give you pause in any way to to the you know, the momentum being shown to some of those IPOs right out of the gate.
4: No, it just shows shows the insatiable appetite right now in the capital markets. There is a lot of dry powder. I think Larry Fink was on this morning just talking about the amount of capital that is on the sidelines. And, you know, I think there was a a very important point made by Megan just to kind of play off of the news and into this right now. Um, There is a distinct separation in what's happening in the markets, which are generally forward looking, right? Um, and what's actually happening in our economy. And so whether when we hear from Fed Chair Powell this afternoon or whether we when we hear from the president, there are still some significant challenges in the real economy right now. But the market is seeing through them to more optimism in the second half of this year, maybe even in second quarter. We're going to see some some shimmying, I think, a little bit here in the first quarter. But the latter part of the year, we're going to see things come come to fruition um, as it relates to the economy approving for a myriad of reasons that we can get into. But these IPOs are really a sign that one, people have capital to put to work. Two, they want to put it to work. Three, for solid companies, because we're not seeing a a plethora of companies that are just all popping the way that we saw in other times, we're seeing some sound companies that have been in the market in the private markets for a while coming public, which is a, a good sign for the long-term capital markets. And you know who else is going to benefit from that, Scott? You know where I'm going with this. Those banks. Mm.
6: Those yeah. banks no. with banks. investment banking yeah.
4: and capital markets activity. Yeah. But JP I won't Morgan. go there right now, Scott. But if I'm you sorry. want to, I will. <laughs> no, I, can I go. I I'll gonna, give you a list. I
2: was just going to note that, you know, <laughs> JP Morgan and I think it's Goldman Capital One are, uh, uh, yeah, JP Morgan, Cap CapOne, uh, Goldman, all hitting all-time highs today. On that note, I was going to pivot to to interest rates. It is a bank story, obviously, <laughs> but I was going to do it in the sense of, you know, the watching where interest rates go has a direct impact on some of those high flying growth names. You know, these IPOs maybe as well, right? You're willing to pay up for growth because where else are you going to get it? Rates, rates are so low. And on that note, I know Court did mention Jay Powell, the Fed chair, he is speaking at the bottom of the hour Uh, at Princeton University. It's a closely watched speech given what's happened with interest rates of late. There is the 10 year now. Uh, 110 Mm -hmm. is where it currently is. It's up better than 50 percent in just three months. And on that note, we're joined now by Nancy Davis. She's managing partner at Quadratic Capital. She's got a trade for you on what's happening with interest rates. We'll get that in a moment. Senior economics reporter Steve Leisman joining us now, too. Steve's good to see you, Nancy. Welcome. Happy New Year. Steve, I, I begin with you in-, in looking ahead to what we're going to get from the president elect tonight. Do-, do you think that the Democrats winning control of the Senate sort of resets the conversation now on on interest rates and inflation?
1: I, I think potentially, uh, certainly for the market, uh, you know, the uh, victory by the Democrats in the in Georgia in the Senate races, uh, did change the equation. The possibility of more stimulus could bring things forward more quickly. Um, but I think the message from Powell, beginning at 12:30, if my guess is right will be one of leaning against any preemptive moves by the Fed. We've had several Fed speakers come forward and say, you know what, we need plenty of evidence of inflation. We need plenty of evidence that this economy has rebounded. Uh, I think one of the earlier uh, speakers was talking about the kind of underlying damage to the economy that's been done. Something like 14 million people have either left work or or there are that many fewer jobs uh, together, those two numbers suggest, you know what, Scott, and, and along with the million of people who filed for jobless claims uh, in the last week, th- there's a long way to go before this economy worries about inflation.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, look, and, and there could be, Nancy, a, a long way to go before the, the Fed is, is ready to do anything about <clears throat> it. That, that's key as well. So in, it, on that note, what's the way to look at it as an investor?
7: Well, I think going back to Jim's opening comments, in every, every asset, whether it's a stock or whether it's interest rates and inflation, you want to buy low. And right now, the market, the rates market, does not believe that the Fed will be successful in achieving uh, that inflation target. And so it's time to buy now because it's really um, inflation is cheaply priced and inflation expectations, which is what Jay Powell in all of his speeches over the last several years, he keeps talking about, not wanting to raise food prices or housing prices or energy prices but he wants to normalize inflation expectations and i think that's the key that investors need to focus on is how do they get inflation expectations not measured by the consumer price index into their portfolios right now when it's cheap to buy low right at the moment.
2: You know, Steve, Charlie Evans suggested the other day, and I know this was much talked about, certainly by you and others, that he'd be willing to let inflation run um, a little hot. Right. And then we had a conversation with Gundlock the other day about sort of what the Fed would be willing to accept if you want to Accept that word. Yeah, I was. He, uh, I, I, I was on
1: the edge of my seat, Scott, <laughs> with the popcorn and the Gatorade while Gunlock was talking. Yeah, let, let's do this. Watching that
2: so, closely. Let's let's refresh your memory even better on what he did say and get you reacting <clears throat> on the other side. Here's Gunlock.
8: I think the Fed will let the ten-year go higher than one and a half. Um, I don't know what the number is. It might, might be two. But again, I'm going to go back to this theme that the inflation rate, the the headline CPI, is going to go above 2.5 in the next few months. And I think as long as the uh, viewpoint of CPI is higher than the rate on the 10-year, that the Fed may let things be. I I think that if the 10-year goes above the headline CPI or the core CPI or both, that might be the trigger that the Fed comes in and does their yield curve control.
2: There's also the suggestion, Steve, that the Fed's hands are kind of tied, that they're going to sit back and just watch inflation do what it does um, and maybe let it go because what you said at the very beginning, you did a million new jobless claims or just about that today. So there is real weakness across the economy. At the same time, you have rates potentially rising and inflation going up.
1: Right. Well, remember also, Scott, that the Fed is doing an average inflation targeting regime right now. Uh, And and so it really is actually aiming for inflation above its 2% target. So that won't be an accident of policy if they're able to achieve it. Uh, it will be the actual goal of policy. And I think Jeff has a really smart way of thinking about it, which is, you know, what does the Fed want here? Uh, what, what kind of interest rate would potentially be restrictive to the economy? And he's, it really, it's a, neg- it's a positive real rate. Because if you, if you follow closely what Jeff was saying right there, he's doing a calculation in the back of his head there. Well, inflation is X, uh, the 10-year yields yielding Y, it's still a negative rate. And it's when it gets positive that the Fed might be brought into some operation to depress the level of the long end. I'm not so sure that's it, but it's a really good way to think about what might bring the Fed in. And while rates are negative, I think the real, real rates are negative. I think the Fed is happy to let things ride.
2: The, the bottom line for you, Nancy, in terms of, of how to, to play it, is that you want to hedge inflation and play interest rate volatility at the same time.
7: Yeah, I mean, John knows so well that interest rate volatility, the cost of owning that that hedge or that protection is trading near lifetime history of financial market lows. So similar, I think of it as like if you own a home or you run an apartment or a house and you have homeowner's insurance and your house doesn't burn down, are you, are you disappointed at the end of the year that you had that protection? I think that's what investors need to be thinking about is getting that inflation protection outside of the CPI basket now while it's easy to buy low and you can have it in case the Fed is successful. I think it's one of those don't fight the Fed trades and there are very few things in financial markets whether it's stocks or credit or um, fixed income that are trading near it's 10-year, 20-year, 30-year, 40-year lows. It's interest rate volatility and inflation expectations that are cheap right now, in my opinion.
2: I mean, it's not so indifferent, John, to Jerry, as to how we look at the VIX, right? The VIX gets really low. It's right. like, what? what's the harm in taking out some insurance uh, in case things get a little nutty, John, right?
5: Exactly. And, you know, Scott, you started asking me uh, 15 minutes ago about well, John, you've pared back equity positions and you've gone into derivatives. Derivatives aren't at those historic lows that Nancy just cited uh, in the equity markets, but they are considerably lower than they were a month ago or you know during some of the disruption. Forget about the 80 levels of the VIX uh, in 2020, Scott. Just you know the mid, the high 20s to the <clears throat> mid 30s. Uh, we're way down below that. And to Nancy's point, being able to buy. Um, some inflation protection, if you will, for your portfolio at these historic low levels for that, for those fixed income portfolios. Why not? I mean, it makes all the sense in the world. It's a trade I should be putting on. I agree with Nancy.
2: Steve, I know you've got to bounce in a second because you have to get ready to listen to what Powell's going to say in uh, less than five minutes. But to, to just put a button on the the, the way the market views all of this and maybe how it'll view the comments from Mr. Powell as well. Jim Labenthal, who's on the show today, suggested the, the level on the 10 year to make the Fed start to feel uneasy is maybe one three to one five, whereas Gunlock suggested maybe that's a little bit low. But if you start to get you know, momentum above one point five percent, that could do it. What do you think about that thought?
1: I think it depends on on how and why we get there. Um, You know, I I think the Fed is not going to lean against a 10 year that goes up because of belief in greater economic growth uh, down the road. Um, I I think if it feels like the market's dislocated, it'll come in. If the Fed thinks it can do good, if the Fed does not see the prospects for better growth uh, and that and that the 10 years getting in the way of that, I think it might come in. But I, I think I like the idea of the higher end or the higher range that uh, Jeff Gundlach's talking
2: about, rather than Jim's little tighter range right, All right there. Steve, appreciate it. Go uh, go listen to Powell. We'll uh, we'll hear from you for certain. Nancy, can you give me a last <laughs> word uh, in 30 seconds or less?
7: Well, Scott, I, uh, I do think it's really a time for investors to be thinking about inflation protection, thinking about ways, and I think the, the big important point is there are lots of different types of volatility. The VIX is just equity volatility, and most regular investors are short- volatility in their fixed income portfolio with mortgages. So it's time to be thinking about diversification and thinking about buying fixed income ball, which is outside the VIX. So we're really um, excited about 2021. And we do think the Fed's going to let it run hot, coupled with the fiscal stimulus.
2: Good hearing from you, as always. You always make us think that's Nancy Davis of Quadratic. Moments away from Jay Powell in Princeton. We're back right after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more.
6: Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. New York State Attorney General Letitia James is suing the New York City Police Department. James says police Against misconduct during racial North. injustice protests this spring the are part of, of a long-standing pattern of abuse. Of Delta's CEO Ed Bastian says that he expects people who rioted at the U.S. Capitol to be added to the federal no-fly list, Delta also banning passengers from checking firearms on flights to Washington, D.C. ahead of the inauguration. Federal officials now telling NBC News that a decision on opening the National Mall for the inauguration has not yet been finalized. The Park Service now expects to make an announcement as soon as tomorrow. And a Mickey Mantle rookie card, much like this one, just sold for a record-setting $5.2 million. That is nearly twice what the same card sold for in 2018. Speaking of inflation, at least that's what some people are saying. Scott, you're up to date. Back to
2: you. And oh, by the way, it sold for like $260,000 in 2006 or something like that. Yep. So So, you want to talk about sports card inflation. Uh, Oh, my gosh.
6: That's it. Right. And hard assets. That's what everybody's uh, looking at right now.
2: Yep. All right. Thanks, Sue. You got it. Uh, Unusual activity in its own way, Doc. uh, But you have your own.
5: Yes, sir. Uh, Scott, uh, unusual activity in Intel has been picking up, picking up, picking up since basically mid December when the stock was 45. They came up with a report. The stock jumped. And then, of course, Uh, They announced that the CEO was stepping down, and instead it would be the VMware CEO taking over. And that has investors pretty psyched about the upside potential. They still are, Scott, speculating that the stock goes higher. Next week expiration, the 22nd of January, they're buying the at-the-money, the the 60-strike call. They've bought a lot of those. Obviously, since it's at-the-money, they're not asking for it to make a huge jump, But they want participation from right where it is here at 60 bucks a share, Scott, to wherever it can get to over the next week. I'll probably be in these calls four to five days. And I do like the way the stock is acting right now.
2: Okay, good stuff. Uh, Again, we are waiting on uh, Jay Powell, the Fed chair. We'll be speaking down in Princeton. We're going to go to that live as soon as we do see the Fed share. So I may have to break away from our next conversation, ladies, at any minute. But I wanted to have both of you involved because there were a couple of good calls in energy today. Chevron upgraded to a buy at HSBC. Exxon upgraded to overweight over at Barclays. Megan, you just upgraded energy, as I mentioned earlier. Courtney, you think that, that trade is, is too crowded. Court, you first.
4: I wouldn't say too crowded. My point being is if you're gonna move, you need to move now. At Loop Capital, we cover institutional investors, Scott, as you know, ranging from really large to small. And I will tell you the one sector that we have seen buying over the past several months it consistently on a two to one basis, sometimes even three to four to one has been in energy. We're actually been better to sell over the past couple of days significantly in other sectors. And that trade that they're going into, Scott, it's it's energy, it's financials, and it's still tech.
2: Yeah. I mean, we got to see if energy really has the legs that some think it does, right? It's already had a big move. Oil's already had a big move, which, Megan, brings me to you. It's sort of really circles back to the way we began this program, is getting positive and upgrading some sectors after they've already had big moves. Why does energy have more to it?
0: Yeah, I think if you remain too focused on the very short term, uh, you'll probably miss out on what you could accomplish over a, a one to three year investment horizon. So definitely options activity fund flows into energy have been a little bit excessive, Energy is a small part of the index. So when we say we're overweight, we're talking about overweight versus a a 2% uh, sector weight in the S&P 500. So small bets go a long way when it comes to energy. But I do think what we're seeing from OPEC, what we're seeing from the likelihood of a resumption of, of cyclical activity, the global reflation story, it is supportive. And I think we probably formed... Uh, somewhat of a durable bottom over a long-term uh, horizon for energy. Short-term, could we see some volatility? Absolutely. You always can with energy. That's why you got to size your bets properly.
2: Jim, you like both Exxon and Chevron, right?
3: Yeah. And, and I like Marathon Petroleum and Kinder Morgan more, but I do like Exxon and Chevron. I want to make a public service announcement. Those four names I just mentioned, <laughs> they are viable here and, and holdable over the next year. Yeah. But if you're playing in these these zombie companies like Transocean or these small E&P companies, you are playing with fire, okay? There is no value in a Transocean other than the scrap value of its rigs. I don't care if oil's at $50 a barrel. You can stick a straw in the desert in Saudi Arabia and they just might do that at any point in time and oil pops up. Nobody's going to be drilling in deep water harsh environments. So just stick to the top of the quality stack in energy and that's the four names I just
2: mentioned. I understand but do you think the, so the recovery okay, is in okay. cat the recovery is in caterpillar but it's not in oil?
3: Oh you got more li- hey caterpillar
2: I think Jim just I've ripped his own microphone. I think Jim just <laughs> no, no, ripped no, no, his I'm microphone. I'm with you. I'm with you.
3: I'm with you. He got excited. You. Oh, did you get so animated yeah. that Look, you knocked your microphone. Caterpillars. I got excited. I did. You get? You give me these good questions. You I ever get excited. You watch that movie? Airplane Jim, you know, when he <laughs> swings the arm
2: out. And...
4: <laughs> hey, hey, hey! Jim's right Calcone's though. Don't 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 bet
3: against Farmer later. Jim here, Scott. Hey guys.
2: All right. Love you, Courtney. Jim.
3: Caterpillar's been rallying since the Caterpillar's been rallying since the summer. Okay, Th- that's an old trade. Courtney's right that that the, the momentum has been picking up in energy, but there's still room to run there. There's still room to run. It's it's about two months old that trade.
2: Okay, John Ajarian.
5: I'm in uh, some energy stocks, as you know, Scott. I've really focused more on alternative energy, but I do own Exxon. I like it. Um, I was uh, listening to Mr. Curry from Goldman Sachs today talking about energy, and he got me all bowled up on uh, fossil fuels as well. <laughs> but I think I only own one of those right now, Scott, the fossil fuel. I'm definitely more on the green and uh, the things that I think the, the new incoming president is about to enact okay. in his first 100 uh, s- days.
2: Sorry for the interruption. Let's go to the Fed chair. Listen to a number of them and okay. I found them very interesting
8: thought-provoking and I'll be very honored to join your your wall of guests with my photograph if you if you'll put it up after this so thank you so um, on our new monetary policy framework uh, as you will know as your listeners will know we're a dual mandate central bank and our statutory goals are maximum employment and stable prices and over the courses of uh, t- the course of 2019 2020 we engaged in a review of our strategy for achieving those goals. And it was our first ever public review of this nature. And we conducted it in a highly transparent way that involved significant public interaction with the constituencies we serve. I would point in particular to the Fed Listens events that we held around the country, uh, meeting with members of the general public with a particular focus on low and moderate income communities, labor unions, small businesses, and the like. So the point of the exercise was to step back about a decade after the global financial crisis and ask what have we learned about the conduct of monetary policy? Specifically, due to a number of persistent factors that are global in nature, interest rates are substantially lower, even in good times. In the US, we've been at or fairly close to the effective lower bound most of the time for a decade. In other jurisdictions, Japan and the EU, rates are even lower. And this has highly important implications for the conduct of monetary policy. The flexible inflation targeting framework of the past couple of decades was successful, but it needed to be adapted in a systematic way to the new normal of life close to the lower bound for interest rates. And that's, that's really the essence of it. So last August, we announced the results, which did, which involved significant changes to our strategy for achieving both of our goals. Again, maximum employment and price stability. So Marcus, your first, your questions really went more to the price stability side of the mandate. So let me start with that. In essence, um, the committee, the FOMC, reaffirmed our understanding of price stability as achieving 2% annual inflation over time as measured by the PCE price index. But we added several new important ideas. Uh, We stressed the importance of having inflation expectations well anchored at 2%, which, of course, enhances our ability to achieve both parts of the mandate. And the centrality of inflation expectations, I think, is a theme that will come back uh, again and again in, in the discussions um, we said that to achieve inflation expectations uh, well anchored at 2%, we actually need to achieve inflation that averages 2% over time. Thus, we said in order to achieve inflation that averages 2% over time, following periods when inflation has run persistently below 2%, we would likely aim to achieve inflation moderately above 2% for some time. So that was the, the sort of logical flow of that. Now, we have called it a, a, a flexible average average. Sorry, flexible average inflation targeting regime. And your first question is, what do you mean by flexible? Um, In effect, that's the question. So the first thing it means is that we we are not, we haven't tied ourselves and won't to a particular mathematical formula when we aim to achieve inflation moderately above 2% for some time. So policy will continue to reflect a broad array of considerations. There's always an element of risk management. There's always an element of judgment. We want inflation expectations, so it'll be well anchored at 2%, and again, you need to average 2% inflation over time to achieve that. As you know, we use policy rules and formulas in our models, and we consult them often in our work, but we don't set policy by them. Uh, The second uh, reason uh, we say flexible is just that we're a dual-mandate bank, and we'll always consider both parts of the mandate, and that means we we couldn't really tie policy to a formula that applies to only one side, in this case, inflation. I'd also be remiss if I didn't uh, briefly mention the equally important changes we made to the employment side of the mandate. So I'll just mention a couple. We, we added new language saying that maximum employment uh, is a broad and inclusive goal, which uh, reflects our appreciation for the benefits of a strong labor market for many in low- and moderate-income communities. Um, second, on the employment mandate, we say that we will react now only to shortfalls for maximum employment as opposed to the old language, which was deviations from maximum employment. And that reflects our view that employment can run at or above our real-time estimates of its maximum level without causing concern unless accompanied by signs of an unwanted increase in inflation or other risks that could impede the achievement of our goals, an important change. And that clearly follows from the experience of recent cycles, especially the last few years before the pandemic, in which labor market conditions were very strong indeed, yet inflation was quiescent, and we saw the substantial social benefits that a strong labor market can and did bring. Um, you also, uh, you, you, you pointed out uh, in your question, I believe, that um, the benefits will be more fully realized to the extent it's seen as credible, the new framework. And um, I, I would say a couple things there. First, since we announced the framework in August, um, there's plenty of evidence that market participants have, shifted their expectation in, expectations in ways that are consistent with the new framework. Surveys now show that market participants expect us not to raise rates until inflation has reached 2% and until the labor market is very strong indeed, and that is also um, consistent with our rate guidance. But, but I would say we're, our eyes are wide open on this. At the end of the day, the public will need to see us allow inflation to move moderately above 2% for a time before the new framework will be seen as fully credible.
9: Thanks a lot, Jay. So, if I may, just follow up on this. So, did you move away a little bit from a single number like Nairo or R star that you said it's a single R star this way, so you can predict perfectly a single R star? So, it becomes more flexible in this regard as well.
8: I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't catch yeah. your, your question.
9: Uh, did you move away from us from the Nairo, the non-accelerating inflation rate yep. of unemployment? Uh, is it more flexible in this regard as well? As there's not a very strict framework, but a more general flexible way that's, of thinking about it.
8: Yeah, that, that's clearly the case. So we will, we will continue to write down our own estimates of, of Nehru, of, of the natural rate of unemployment. Um, of course, that's only one factor we take into account when we talk about maximum employment. I, one of the big lessons of the last crisis uh, was how much room there was in labor force participation, uh, which performed really quite differently than, than expectations and, and better. So um, So we're really looking at that um, employment to population and you know, the size of the workforce and things like that, as, as we always have, broader things. So we'll always write down estimates of the natural rate of unemployment. What we're really saying, though, is we're, we're no longer going to, um, uh, to raise interest rates just because, um, for example, uh, if unemployment were to be well below, again, well below our current estimates of the natural rate of unemployment, that wouldn't be a reason to raise interest rates unless we see uh, troubling inflation or other imbalances that could threaten achievement of our mandate. And that, that is a, that's a significant change. If you, if you read the transcripts of, that were released in 2015, there was a lot of discussion of the issue around, could we let unemployment go below the natural rate? We, we saw what happened. I mean, we, we were the first group on the committee to see a sustained period of very low un, uh, unemployment um, in many years, and we saw that it didn't produce troubling inflation, and we very much took that on
9: board. And by doing so, you take indirectly some inequality considerations into account as well? If the labor market works well, it helps uh, the less well off more. Is this a consideration as well, the inequality inclusiveness uh, component?
8: Yes, the, the sense of our um, looking at maximum employment as a broad and inclusive goal does does include that. And you, you'll notice that we, we have um, been talking more and more about uh, various kinds of inequality um, that have been sustained and have grown in our economy over the years, and there's a reason for that, and that is that we think they they connect directly to our maximum employment goal. So maximum employment, if you if you take that statutory goal seriously, it, it isn't achieved if there are lots of, if there are lots of people not working around the edges of the labor market who could be working who constitute potential labor force. And there's a lot of that in um, in minority communities, low and moderate income communities. So, we focus on it and we, you know, we don't, we never really did just look at the aggregate data, at least in recent years, but we, we will continue to talk about those longer running features features of the economy and we'll continue to take them into consideration in, in looking at maximum employment. I should add though that, you know, we do understand that uh, those issues are important national issues that require a society-wide effort. And that's business, that's fiscal policy, that's the Fed. And what we can do, we will do. And it's important, but really the main answers have to come from education and training. And that has to be, it has to become a national goal, I think. Uh, and and um, we're hopeful that that will be the case.
9: Okay, so let me move on a little bit to the inflation dynamics uh, uh, because there's of course a danger we might up, end up like in Japan that there's huge right now in the crisis there's this huge deflationary pressure because you know forced saving by individuals uh, but on the other hand there might also be a pent-up demand and there might be uh inflation whipsaw you might go back so we might end up you know in a situation where we have now we have to be very aggressive put the foot on the accelerator but then we might get stuck in a low inflation environment for quite a while, or we might also end up in the other extreme and pent-up demand kicks in, um, and then inflation will come back up. So what do you think are the essential elements to control this uh, whipsaw or mechanics, which might occur or might not occur? We might just get stuck in a low inflation environment. What do you see? What are the, how does the new framework help us uh, in this to manage this uh, better, or help you to manage it better? our economy
8: yeah so a couple of things i would say about that first um uh as you suggested in the near term as the pandemic recedes and we see potentially a strong wave of spending as people return to their normal lives and begin consuming various services there could be quite exuberant spending and we could see some upward pressure on prices and by the way at about the same time we'll be seeing measured inflation go up because of base effects as we lap the the low readings of of the first uh, March and April of last year, so in fact, that's quite possible. Indeed, that is in the forecast of many um, many economists. But um, the real question is how large is that effect going to be, and will it be persistent? So, because clearly, a one-time increase in prices that isn't very large is is very unlikely to mean persistently high inflation, and that just is uh, a function of. The underlying inflation dynamics of the U.S. economy, as they have been in the last uh, the last many years, Uh, as you know, we have a we have a flat Phillips curve, meaning there's there's still a small connection, but you need a microscope to find it between slack in the labor market and inflation. We've also got low persistence of inflation, so that if inflation were to go up for any reason, um, it, uh, it, it doesn't follow. Inflation doesn't stay up, and that it used to be. If you go back to when I was an undergrad at Princeton. You had a steep Phillips curve, and it was combined with highly persistent inflation, and that's what gave you the inflation that I graduated into in 1975 and later later in that decade. So dynamics will will change, um, but they don't change. We don't think they change, you know, quickly or on a dime, you know. And and uh, we'll come back to that. I also think let's say that does happen. Let's say we have a strong economy in the second half of the year, and that continues. Remember, we're a long way from maximum employment. There's plenty of slack in the labor market. Unlikely that wage pressures are going to be reaching a level that would create, support higher inflation. Also, second, the other factor I'd point to is look around the world, shortage of demand in, um, in lots of large uh, advanced economy countries around the world With who began this crisis at deeply negative interest rates and have had little policy space with interest rates. Now, there, there are other things they can do and they aren't doing, but that all is going to be hang around for a while, and, and you know the U.S. economy is strongly integrated with with the rest of the world, and that's going to matter. Um, I, I should add, of course, if if inflation were to move up in ways that are unwelcome, we have the tools for that, and we'll use them. We will use them. No one should doubt that. Um, that's in a way, lower low too low inflation is the much more difficult problem to solve. I, I'll stop there. We can talk about it more.
9: So let me uh, move on perhaps to the next topic, from price stability to financial stability, which is also a major concern, I guess, for you <clears> and the Fed more generally. There's also this concept out there of financial dominance. So if the financial sector, of course, it is very sound at this point, but there might be over-leveraging going on also on the corporate side. Do you see that You know, there's some threat from financial instability which might limit what monetary policy you, you can undertake at some point down the road? And do you think the macro potential tools the U.S. has are sufficient to avoid such a financial dominant circumstances? And finally, uh, one of your bond purchasing programs which helps very much the corporate sector to come over the crisis, uh, some corporations might use it to level up and pay out dividends, higher dividends, or buy back shares. Is there any ways of modification that you say or only, participate, only firms which issue bonds and that don't dividends or higher dividends than before can be part of this bond purchasing program. So is is there any any tools like micro-potential tools you can invent or is there other tools compared to other countries you would like to have um, compared to other countries?
8: You know, so I would say we we don't feel any pressure from financial dominance. We'll talk about fiscal dominance, I suppose, in a a moment, but if if financial dominance is the, the reluctance of uh, or even inability of the central bank to tighten policy because of the leverage in the private sector. We we simply, we don't feel that we, you know, our our uh, our corporate sector, our non-financial corporate sector, did go into this uh, downturn with uh, relatively high leverage. But at these low interest rates, the, the, the you know the interest payments are actually not at a, at a terribly high level um, by historical standards. They're sort of at a normal level. Uh, we have not seen a. Uh, the big uptick in defaults that we thought we might see in non-financial corporates, we really haven't seen it. So, um, it's it's just not something we are feeling or have ever felt. Really, we we we, we will um, when the time comes to raise interest rates. Uh, you know, we'll we'll certainly do that. And that time, by the way, is is no time soon. Um, you ask about <clears throat> about um, macro prude pr- tools. So, the difference in the United States between the United States and other countries, I would say is that we do not have uh, a lot of time varying tools that are where we where we can see a particular situation and go in after that situation. And the history of those, we've had them over history and it, it hasn't been a good history that, that it's very difficult uh, uh, to get the timing right and that sort of thing. What we do have is strong through the cycle tools. So the idea is we're not going to rely on our ability to put these things in effect at the right time and in the right proportion. We don't think we're very good at that. We think, we think it's better to, you know, uh, as uh, one of our mutual friends and colleagues uh, likes to say, better to build strong levees than try to predict hurricanes. So what we've done is we particularly in good times, we run these very strong stress tests that require banks to be resilient against the kinds of massive stresses that can suddenly appear in the global financial crisis. In, in, the, in the aftermath of the arrival of the pandemic. And um, I think that's the right way to do it. And those are always on, good times and bad. You want to be building the strength of the financial system during good times and holding on to those gains. And that, that's really how we look at it. We're not really seeking the other kinds of tools. Other, other countries have a different political economy. And that's the way we, we're doing it. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I think that way works. I think if you look at the performance of the US banking system, certainly, and and many aspects of the non-banking financial sector which which we can talk about um, they performed fairly well so far during this this episode um, you, you mentioned the bond purchase program so we had a primary facility and it's it closed on december 31 but where we were willing to lend money directly to companies and then we had really as a way to get a get a grip on financial conditions in the non-financial corporate market at the height of the crisis, at the, during the really acute period, was we, a secondary market where we would buy very, very small amounts of bonds for um, uh, issued by, you know, like 800 different issuers. And the idea was we, we wanted to be able to, if, if conditions started to fall apart, get in there and have a strong effect. We didn't extend any new credit to any corporate in in either program. We didn't make a single loan, as you probably know, in the in the primary one. And, you know, we're just buying a handful of of loose bonds in the market for 800 different issuers. So we weren't really in a position to demand that anybody do anything. Uh, The other thing, though, I would say is um, that's a decision for Congress. You know, we we really shy away from anything to do with credit allocation. And there, there are all sorts of sort of social benefit and cost judgments that can be embedded in the kinds of factors those are great judgments. They're important judgments, but we're really not comfortable making them at the Federal Reserve. You know, we, we don't want to get into credit allocation based on a, a lot of different factors. Those, that's what you know, elected people are elected to do. They provide there are all sorts of places in the federal government where they're providing credit to important uh, constituencies and industries at attractive rates, and that's the job of, of elected people. So that's how we think about that one.
9: Great. So let's uh, move on and go a little bit deeper into the COVID crisis. And I think what's striking is to contrast it with the 2008 global financial crisis. Where do you see the major differences between the two crises? And you know, would you say that the COVID sh- fundamental shock was way larger than the 2008 shock, but the reaction of the Fed was also much faster and perhaps prevented some amplification, which we would have observed otherwise? And are there any lessons from 2008 which are very useful this time around and other lessons which, you know, were outdated or irrelevant? Is there any contrast you can uh, make between various forms of lessons of 2008?
8: Interesting. So, the, you know, the, you're right that the COVID shock, der, shock, just strictly as a matter of the arithmetic of the decline in, in the first and second quarters, the COVID shock was significantly larger, but really... The two episodes are just fundamentally different, and the most important differences are are not really about size. Um, So if you go back to the global financial crisis and the Great Recession, they resulted from the buildup of um, unsustainable imbalances in the economy in the form form of a housing bubble that popped. And then an undercapitalized banking system amplified that shock rather than absorbing it, and, and that system ultimately needed to be bailed out by the taxpayers. There were also lots of points of failure uh, in the non-bank part of the financial system as well. And going into the crisis, household indebtedness was quite high, a lot of it in the form of completely unsupportable mortgages. So when the housing bubble popped, the housing sector was buried in debt and foreclosures came in, and you were in right away a very, very slow and painful and long recovery. Very different situation here. Uh, the pandemic was effectively a natural disaster, right? Um, and it struck an economy that was performing well. Now, every economy, and certainly our economy, uh, faces plenty of longer-run challenges. But I would say there were no obvious imbalances that threatened the long, ongoing expansion. You really can't identify something that looked like, yeah, this, if this blows up, it could blow up the expansion. Um, the banking sector, as I mentioned, is was much better capitalized had much more liquidity, a far greater appreciation of its risks uh, through thanks to stress testing and such. We did see some problems this time in the, non-financial, non, the non-bank sector of the financial, uh, not the non-bank sector, sorry, of the financial sector, uh, but less so than in the, in the GFC. Um, households were in relatively good shape going in too after many years of deleveraging. Corporate leverage was high, as I mentioned, but uh, um, we haven't seen really uh, the payoff there in a negative way. So there's another, and you pointed to this, another critical difference is this time, both fiscal and monetary authorities responded very quickly and very powerfully and in a sustained way. Critically, it was sustained. Um, and I, w- I would just say this was, a, this was a particular shock that called for fiscal policy. What we can do is we can, um, we can restore market function and, and sustain market function, and then we can stimulate aggregate demand with highly accommodative
10: monetary policy.